Hello and welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. Yeah. We took a break. Um, we, did. That, we did those three Robert Maxwell uh, episodes and that was that was a lot. Yeah. And then that heat <laughs> um, wave, I... Uh, oh, we yeah, we were going we to record done a really, last week. We could have done a really good one. I was seeing things by the end because I hadn't slept <laughs> for days. Like, <laughs> I was just going into a sort of standby mode. I could achieve I could achieve a comfortable standby mode for maybe 20 minutes if I had a cold shower and then lay on the sofa in front of the fan. <laughs> that was the only way I could... I could steal maybe an hour between ten and eleven in the morning <laughs> before the before the sun hit before the sun got too high in the sky. Yeah, um, I mean there was that there was that big the the last big kind of proper heatwave where it was sustained over a number of days was wasn't like as, wasn't as long as this as well. Yeah, it was like twenty sixteen, I think twenty seventeen. Um, and yeah, that was that was bad enough. But this was like, what, nine days oh, of just gross. constant above thirty degree temperatures. Oh, it was horrible. But yeah, maybe you we know? should have done a pod, and I, I could, you know, I start talking <laughs> about the things I've seen and the ideas. Let's that I let's have. let's really open up Hugh's brain from the very lizard parts, <laughs> and just build it up from there, or cancel the podcast altogether. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So then, but now we're back. We're back. Yeah, we're back. Nothing has changed in Britain. Yeah, still, still in the null space. Hmm. It's very, it's very odd. I keep, I've got like, I've got, I'm working from home. I have Hmm. enough to keep me occupied into a good rhythm. I mean, I've got a natural rhythm that tends to adapt itself to whatever I'm in, whether that's my previous careers of like seventy hours a week, or, um, you know, like just working and then just sitting around on the weekends yeah but yeah it does feel like there's this there's this like there's this kind of it hasn't quite broken down yet and sometimes you you like take a long view and realize oh yeah no this lockdown covid situation has been going for five months Mm -hmm. you know i think i started working from home at the end of march yeah and it's now nearly the end of august Mm -hmm. and like i don't know what that means anymore i don't like i can't even calculate what parts of my life have been cut out because of this <laughs> because it's been cut know? off because it's been cut out for so long now yeah as well i mean i yeah i mean i went to um i i have started kind of trying to force myself to because like i could frankly um i could be at home mm-hmm. for the rest of my life <laughs> quite happily i think mm-hmm. probably not good for the people around me or me, realistically. Yeah. But I could do it quite happily. Yeah. But I actually um, kind of went out to a, a, a pub-like environment for the mm-hmm. first time since March. I yeah. did that, uh, like, last Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, I say pub-like environment because it was one of those um, – one of the, technically a tap room. It was a car park in an industrial estate. Yeah. Um, a lot of but, so. Yeah. And, I mean, the, this wasn't one of those, like, plucky um, young DIY breweries, you know, like Punk Spirit. Like, you <laughs> – your brew dogs, your, your plucky young upstarts with their venture capital offerings and IPOs, <laughs> IPOs and IPAs. Um, this was actually like, I think it's the Truman Brewery. Yeah. So like a big, big brewery. Yeah. Well, pretty big brewery. Um, and 
like we had to book ahead which is a, a weird thing anyway but it's mm-hmm. like okay that's like covid population control kind of thing yeah um and they booked ahead and went to it and they had just like tables outside with parasols like any other pub garden mm-hmm. and they've got a couple of food vans around there as well um they had sessions i think it said on the thing but you you got in there and like there was there was nobody there it was not busy at all Mm -hmm. like barely half full this car park yeah and you had to do the thing where they had like little menus on the tables and stuff um drinks and food menus and you had to order via an app um with Mm -hmm. people like taking you to your table and serving you you weren't allowed to get up for any Mm -hmm. reason other than going to the toilet yeah and, like, for a while, bathing in the glow of my first pint for five months, yeah. I was like, yeah, hey, this is, this is fucking luxurious, man. I, yeah. this is... And, like, I kind of uh, had a few pints and had food and, and went home. And then you start kind of feeling about how you come away from it yeah. and, like, how, how measured and how like, uber, uber-fied it was. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't use... I don't, yeah, I don't use Uber... Um, just because it it has always sat wrong with me the way that in the modern app economy it feels like you should be able to have a servant (laughs) you should be able to afford a temporary servant and Mm -hmm. it's like but like going to pubs normally you have this like autonomy you can walk in on like just you can walk in and sit there you can move around you can dip in and out and like i'm trying not to be too farage about it but there's like a freedom there you yeah, know? there's like um, and, like there's places yeah. that I know that you can where you can go up to the bar, and one of the things that's been happening in Corona times is queues, orderly queues at the bar, which hmm. upsets me on a base level. Of I don't want to go to a pub and queue. I don't. I like the scrum. <laughs> like again, it sounds a bit Faragey. Like no. that's I mean, part of Britain like... that go into lean against yeah. the bar and wait for your turn. You know, it's just oh. yeah. It, it, it is it is normal behaviour and it is comforting. Obviously, like saying pubs are places of freedom and safety, there are obviously huge expect, exceptions yes, in the, obviously. In, with people to thinking of pubs as safe spaces. You know, yeah, like exactly. women, yeah. people of colour, LGBT people, obviously. But well, yeah, that's like, even worse though with what's been going on because, like, you know, the yeah. the track and trace leaving your numbers, your number mm. and address. The fact that there's been quite a few cases I've seen on the internet now. Of, of um fucking bar staff using it to hassle girls. Jesus, really? Yeah. God. I don't I know. Maybe they've maybe that. they've dealt with it pretty. Maybe they dealt with it sharpish because they should deal with it sharpish. If I was running yeah. a bar and like someone did that, you'd like want to get rid of them instantly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, like, yeah, without overestimating the amount of like the pub as a symbol of liberty for app to absolutely everybody. Yeah. Like the mechanisms by which you use a pub do have that kind of level of autonomy and that's been my experience whenever i've gone out like mm-hmm. there's there's this real kind of crackdown on the idea that you can have that like that level of autonomy autonomy mm-hmm. like i mean we've talked about it before like it's similar to the experience of like city centers where they've reduced public spaces you know there's there's so few places that you can just kind of exist in yeah yeah, you know, exactly. If it, I mean, again, I might be just talking about London because it's you know actually desired real estate. That's probably not as true elsewhere. But no, I remember like, that happening. I remember that happening to us. In, like when you were doing your 
whistle stop tour of the Midlands when you were living all yeah. over the place. There was like um I remember it being I refer to it as my grand tour because <laughs> I learned everything I needed to about art and culture from my <laughs> decade long tour living in the Midlands. <laughs> but um yeah, you learned all about plates in Derby, you learned all about something I did. in Brum. Um how not to buy a bag of frozen shark meat. Um <laughs> but like I remember in, in Birmingham, it was you know like that control of space was still was very much a thing, mm. and in Nottingham as well. Um, in Nottingham, yeah, it like, did. Because I remember Nottingham was a yeah. different because you were yeah. there for so long. I remember like when they redid all the middle bit. Well, I mean, I was already in Nottingham for three. I was in Nottingham for weirdly enough, I was in most of the places for about the same time. Yeah. Like well, I lived um, in Lincoln well, for three I, years. We had friends who were living in Nottingham, Nottingham before for three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, um, yeah, it's like it's I don't. It's probably not the same in like. In the in smaller towns, but it's definitely a figure like pretty much every city. I mean, yeah, it is obviously, yeah, and it feels but, like, very much like it, the goal. It's just, yeah, it's just such a weird thing that like the kind of enforcement and the kind of lack of the lack of like your own autonomy, yeah. even in 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 public, because of the the social spacing, the, the social distancing. It's and, nanny state stuff. Say what you mean. The, you, you, it's nanny state stuff, and you hate I being think told that <laughs> the natural liberty of the freeborn Englishman is. You see, like you have to kind of like th- yeah, think about those things because, yeah. like, by contrast, they're <laughs> thinking like, but like by contrast of like they've got those dual competing narratives of get out and spend as much as possible please mm. because our economy is 80 percent services and, co- and commerce yeah. and, and like uh, recreation and, and we need you to spend money or rents. everything's gonna collapse yeah yes um but i think it's i think it's i think we mentioned this when the lockdown started but i think it's really telling how much the trajectory of this particular system when it's under pressure and when it's restricted in a way that it's not able to act as normal just tends to enhance the trajectory that frankly the worst dystopian ideas about where this kind of atomized very um uh restrictive kind of economy is yeah. is going like very commerce commercial like oriented economy is going mm. i mean it's like like contrast it with the way that they're like policing the home mm-hmm. so like leicester lockdown is being eased we've just learned that uh, this oh. this afternoon okay and it's being eased in a way that you can get a tattoo you can go to an outdoor swimming pool <laughs> apparently the last outdoor swimming pool in leicester closed in the 70s but you can't meet up with more more than four people in a flat yeah you know yeah, yeah. it's the way that this the home has become because it's extraneous to the economy because meeting up with friends is ultimately socializing at home isn't important to the economy Mm -hmm. it's therefore subject to greater enforcement because it simply does not matter to those people Mm -hmm. you know like if a a paranoid person might quote the line about there being no such thing as society only individuals and their families overlay that onto this and think that this phrase and this kind of thinking might have influenced the way that they've approached this lockdown as well as undermining solidarity outside the kind of traditional family unit yeah you know, yeah, and it's like it's that that very much that thing of like, yeah, thank God lockdowns finally ended, so I can go back to doing all the things I love to do that I was never able to do from because they were removed from affordability or or access in the last decade or so. Yeah, oh, I can go to a library again. There are no libraries. <laughs> you know, yeah. oh, I can go and hang out. You know, in the park. Oh, it all got kind of turned into housing. Yeah, um, you see the news about like South Bank. Um, oh fuck yeah! 
getting um, private, essentially privatised. Yeah, 90%. It's going to be closed down. It's not going to be a mass, mass venue. 90% um, spaces, I believe, was the oh, phrasing. I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact spacing. Oh, God, they're going to turn it into a shopping centre. Westfield. Of course they are. Well, I mean, even if they keep it as artist flats, as like um, artist spaces, it's mm. going to be unusable by anybody but the richest because yeah. they're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, like the example of kind of the trajectory that things are falling under, just happening to fall under the exact policy and uh, subtext of the Conservative government, cultural spaces and venues get shut down. And in response to them pleading for money, are told they have to be more commercial, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with, like, the um, A-level results thing that's happened this week. You know, after years of Tory education reforms mm-hmm. and Tory education ministers what saying... What do you mean years? This is a see. new government. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah. Sorry. No, they're absolutely... They're all, they're all new people. There's not mm-hmm. a long-term plan to uh, completely gut the university sector, the fine, further education sector, to privatise education. <laughs> um but yeah, like after years of them saying like, oh, there's grade inflation, grades are too high. We don't like the fact that so many people are going to university. Universities are hotbeds of radical activism, so reduce their intake. Mm-hmm. Private schools do much better anyway, so we should encourage them to become more like private schools, which means that just charge them money. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that fell, all of like, this supposedly chaotic event that no one could predict, that we were just trying to muddle through. Somehow, conspiracy theory time, it ended up... <laughs> functioning and moving in the exact ideological direction that the <laughs> conservative government with a massive majority wanted it to move into and like it, it does kind of like it just kind of really fucking annoys me oh the other thing did you see um so yeah public health england the the body yeah. that's been um trying to coordinate a response to the, the coronavirus you mean the people that caused all these deaths uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be merged with the NHS Track and Trace scheme into a new body called like the Institute for Disease Prevention or something. Yeah. Um, or Health Promotion or something. Yeah. Headed by the head of the NHS Track and Trace scheme, who's Dido Harding. The wife who, of her Tory uh, MP. The wife of and Conservative saw... Member of Parliament, John Penrose, who sits on the advisory board of the think tank 1828, which calls for the NHS to be replaced by an insurance system and for Public Health England to be scrapped. Oh, by the way, he's also the government's anti-corruption czar. <laughs> I also saw that, um, it was a thing on Twitter I saw, that it was um, the connection between all of them and like Matt Hancock and stuff like that. Is they're all like dead into horse racing? <laughs> um, yeah, she's, I think, the chairperson of the jockey club. And uh, what's the jockey club? Is that where they breed jockeys to make them shorter? Yeah, it's a long-term genetic engineering to create the perfect jockey. Yeah, otherwise known as the Star Child, (laughs) the Quizatz Horderac, (laughs) Quizatz Horderac, who is one foot tall, weighs hollow bones, one foot tall, weighs nothing, (laughs) aerodynamic, very thin head. But, um, yeah, it's, it's the A-level yeah. stuff has been like, it's it's been exactly what you would think Tories would do if they had an 80-seat majority. And, um, I mean, it's it's just like... It's, even I, the rollback, I, I and even like the, the whole U-turn, thing of like, it's like, yeah. it's, it's done in such a Tory way where it's like, but most of the places are already taken. And yeah. they're already saying like, they're giving, they're, you know, a lot of the universities are saying like, we're going to give them their places, the ones who would have got in. 
but a lot of them are being asked to wait until next year. And there was someone on the radio today saying that um, this year was already one of the least diverse years of um, people going to university. Next year will be even worse because they'll be competing with all the ones from this year. And also, they've just lost half a year's of, uh, well, more than half a year's worth of education. Yeah. It's it's just all of these, all of these like secondary um, crises you would think would turn into something big and just they they've even if they fail they've just taken another step towards the particular entrenchment of that class privilege mm. and the particular entrenchment of just an outrageously unequal outcome which thing. is always been what they've wanted it's a good thing the labor party is standing against it and demanding that everyone goes back to school in september mm. <laughs> so like i've been thinking about this right yeah. and I don't think that calling for people to go back to school is necessarily the the wrong thing, right? Because, yeah, on the one hand, you do have Tories kind of advancing their monstrous agenda, the business as usual people. I mean, on the other hand, the I fucking love masks people, mm-hmm. um, this particular kind of – you knew it was going to happen mm-hmm. and you knew it was going to be like this. But the people who react every time as like – Every kind of attempt to get things moving again is to say that you're going to kill your grandma Mm -hmm. is an attitude that I I kind of align with the same with, you know, the way that whenever the government say we're going to make English lessons mandatory, like it's some kind of punishment on your like social enemies. Mm -hmm. Like, haha, you will go to prison unless you have these free evening classes that will really help your life. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. And like, um, I am get, I am like pretty sympathetic with gen- generally with people talking about like the economy and schools and work and like resuming that activity. I mean, for nothing else, because like, let's face it, their instincts are right. Like, if the working class's survival is based on their utility and their labour power, mm-hmm. and pretty much the only thing that prevents like capitalists from grinding the poor into a kind of soylent green type paste. Mm-hmm is the necessity of their labor, then what happens if the capitalist class finds ways of making do with less workers or no workers? You know, Hmm. I mean, people might not theorize it like that. People might not phrase it like that. They're like, I've got to have money coming in. But ultimately they're saying the same thing. And I I kind of do feel it like with people going back to school, like these things do matter. Like if the A-level things is what happens when schools close, nobody is going to look at that and prefer it to getting their kids educated. And being and because you know they've been told that that's the path to exerting even just a little bit more more influence upon their own adult lives, you know, and you know I know like the kind of back to work, everything's okay, don't worry, be brave and be strong, be mas- ultimately be masculine. Hmm. All of those public responses are kind of funneled into that into the culture war thing, mm-hmm. but. I do think that there's like people are obviously aware that they have a precarious material condition that people were aware of and could do could have the freedom to express that without being told they're going to kill their nan. You know? Yeah. Um my my issue is that um at first they were like 2 meters apart then they're 1 meter apart mm. and now they're going to just put them all back into school. Um and there won't be distancing. You can't make kids do that kind of shit. It just won't it won't mm. happen. And it's just yeah. Of and course. It's, well, yeah. The, the issue comes down to 
a lot of this could have been avoided if you know like remember at the start of all of this when they said things like they were going to give make sure that everyone had internet <laughs> and they had and um people had access yeah. to laptops if they didn't have them and then they did nothing i don't know where that yes, that's worth, probably worth looking into where all that fucking money went um because they just because it doesn't matter does it they just no. fight it off and yeah yeah, and then it gets laughed. Like I'm not saying. But that, my, I'm my not worry saying, is that there's, that there's gonna there's so much there's so much risk involved in it, and they don't care. <laughs> hmm. um, there's no there's no reason for them to care about it other than bad headlines if the NHS gets overwhelmed. But then they're going to privatize that anyway. So well, yeah, I don't think you know. I don't think they, they I don't think they worry about bad headlines. What head, what bad headlines are they going to fucking get? It's like how many deaths yeah. have there been? Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, the, the, it's uh, what's fucking irritated me so much is because, of course, the proper response to this is say, like, recognize the fact that people are incredibly precarious. Recognize the fact that the economy, like, the economy diving twenty percent in a mm-hmm. quarter, like it just has, mm-hmm. will only have effects on like the working class. Will have its greatest effects mm. on their like life expectancy. Yeah, one hundred percent. Their general physical and mental health. Yeah. Of course, they will. And like. I think like the main problem I have with it is that the only power block standing in its way, the only power block from the opposite direction that could possibly stand against this particular conservative government would be a kind of general like would be I mean would be unions would but the only one that's actually there is a bunch of bad headlines. Yeah. And even that is all oh it's oh, a level a level chaos and it's like it's not chaos. How can the how can the toast land butter side up every time for this fucking Tory government? Whenever they have a secondary crisis yeah. caused by COVID, how can it land butter up every single time? And it just be chaos. It's not chaos. Yeah, it's disaster capitalism. They are cause they are actively taking like advantage of this. Mm. Like th- I was thinking about it. Like think about the um the the Marxist phrase. The um people make history, make their own history, but don't make it in circumstances of the but make it in circumstances of their own choosing. Yeah. And you think about like the things that would usually constrain your like your ability to make history, right? Your ability to do stuff. Mm. It would be institutions, traditions, uh, material circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. What we're what we're observing now is a political class completely free of that. In this case, like for instance, like with exams and testing, it's a tradition. You do A level exams and you get A level results. Yeah. And they've been liberated for that, and this is the result. And what does that tell you about? what they desire, what kind of future they're prepared to accept and foist upon everybody. Mm. They have an advantage and they're pushing it like never before. And there's like, honestly, I can't even, I can barely even muster myself to criticize Starmer over that kind of thing. Because realistically, even if they were functioning, even if they were firing on all cylinders, there is nothing they can do to stop it. Absolutely nothing. I mean, yeah, like, realistically, there's nothing. There they is could no do to opposition coming from Labour, even if they were good. There's realistically, there's nothing they could do. There's no no opposition realistically. But if hmm. they showed an ounce of solidarity with, say, teachers unions and yeah, a lot of the other groups that Starmer has yes. al- already thrown under the bus and just give, doesn't give a fuck about, um, then people wouldn't feel as well. Already, everyone feels atomized and alone because we're trapped in our houses and can't really do much. Yeah, um, people would feel less so. Yeah. Do you mean they could literally I mean, do that? Which is like if you're in a position where you've got no power to, you know, they're not going to change anything with votes because, you know, they're not. Um, 
but they could well, be I mean, doing Labour, that Labour kind of aren't stuff. even in Labour aren't even in the position. You could think that they're in the position of trying to preserve state power so that it's fully intact when they get their turn. Yeah. They're not even doing that. No. Like what they should actually be thinking about doing, if they had any conscience at all, is thinking about what stops this particular unrelenting class warfare mm. and what stops the state. What mm. what stops it making these decisions? What what blocks can you put in the way of this? Mm. And like they're they're barely there. They're mm. nowhere near. It's usually, it's, I thought it was the left who was supposed to take advantage of crises. <laughs> it's just absolutely not the case. Yeah, well, that's been the case for a long time now. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you could get a solution where you know workers can actually use their advantages of their own labour power, maybe yeah, into a you know, but they. Well, you can't at the moment. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's no, there's absolutely no funnel for it. It's ridiculous. Hmm. Okay, so one of the other things we want to talk about this week, other than just you know, Rona, is Tom Watson has been put up again for a peerage, um, oh, and God. just the interesting way in which it's framed, like he got blocked mm. from the last list, the one that had such luminaries as Claire Fox on. And, it's a little thank you present. Yeah, um, and other ones like Ian Austin. Um, <laughs> Again, yeah. 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 And Kate Hoey. I think yeah. Frank Field as well. Yeah, it was. He oh, me, he retired at the last election, didn't he? Yeah, and you know, yeah. services rendered to the Conservative Party. There's a lot of those ones. Yeah. But um, Watson got rejected at the last one. And there was right. like, you know, was this because of him being a duplicitous snake that tried to tank the Labour Party's attempts to win an election or was it more to do with you know Carl Beach and it was probably yeah. more to do with Carl Beach which is funny he was the he uh, Carl Beach was the man who accused Lord who was it someone uh, it's gonna it's there's they're, they're all of they're all the same they're all the same um, but he was um it was you know Carl Beach was the main witness in the paedophile sex ring thing that was centered around like Dolphin Square and things like that he was the main witness yeah. and it turned out that he was um mentally ill fantasist and paedophile in his own right and yeah. because of that and that whole investigation crumbling you could say that Tom Watson has done more for the house of lords than anybody because they're not going to investigate <laughs> a high end sex ring <laughs> involving um paedophiles in the highest echelons of british society in our lifetimes um, yeah. So realistically, I mean, he should have, you know, definitely got into the House of Lords to join his friends. Um, I'm not saying he did it <laughs> deliberately. Actually, I am not saying he did it deliberately because I think he is also an incompetent. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's been put up again, put up again this time by um, Keir Starmer in like what is one of the most obvious attempts. At, it's just signalling to the party of like this is the way we're going now because you know, yeah, Tom Watson is. Like there's a lot of members there's a lot of members of the Labour Party. There are a lot of um like PLP and former PLP who are not liked by a lot of membership, like a sizable chunk of the membership. Yeah. Even though, you know, Corbyn's gone, Keir Starmer's in charge now, there is still a sizable chunk of left wingers in the Labour Party. And there's a sizable yeah. amount of like MPs and former MPs that they despise. Tom Watson is one of the ones who is most despised and there's no need to make him a well, fucking lord. For, What's he going to be lord of? Halo. Because, because yeah, uh, Destiny. I think you'll find. Oh, uh, he's already a, he's already a lord if he's playing Destiny. Let's face it. Um, he's a lord in my heart. No, in in all seriousness, like he was the one who balanced. The reason why he was so despised is for a while, he was threatening in his own little way to start disrupting some of those 
like um, those happy little circles. Like he was one of the most prominent ones in Leveson, one of the most yeah. prominent MPs in the Leveson inquiry. Yeah, he was the one who um, said like he said mean things to um, to Murdoch once. Yeah, he was, you know, willing to, to to go against that. And, of course, naturally, you give that person uh, a peerage. Mm. Is it a peerage he's getting? Yeah. Um, House of Lords. And it's just, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, peerage, yeah. And there's just, I know we've, I know it can sometimes seem in Britain like nothing ever changes and that you get very inured to that. I don't think I will be inured into this honours list. Like, it was only as recently as what 2006, 2007, hmm. when you had the last cash for honors crisis, mm-hmm. um, which like a le- like arguably led to Tony Blair stepping down earlier than he was going to, because it yeah. all came about right at that time. There were there were talk of serious criminal charges yeah. being raised. I mean, yeah. it comes up what every 10, 20 years that there's a huge scandal regarding the selling of honors. Yeah, and. Every time, every single time, it's just oh no, it's all right. Just yeah. nothing ever, nothing ever changes. Yeah. I mean, this time Boris has like he's elevated thirty six people, mm. thirty six new peers to the House of Lords. The House of Lords now has, with this new intake, has eight hundred and thirty members. All well it's worth ludicrous. it. Ludicrous. Definitely not horrible. Like I'm sure there is probably. I'm going to be generous because I'm feeling in a generous mood towards electoralism and the British political system. Oh, yeah. I'm always. sure that there is a handful of that massive number who aren't monsters. But the vast majority... I'm not sure there's more of a handful who turn up. Well, the thing, the thing is, most of them it's either never... turn up and sleep, who actually are probably... They're probably the least damaging, the ones who turn up and don't. Uh, turn well, they're up the political sleep. ones. They're the, they're the real. They're the real who are political nerds. The ones who turn up and sleep. Yeah, but the or, ones who like the worst ones are like bit of a politico. Ones like um, oh shit, I've forgotten his name. Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, live abroad, <laughs> be just generally a prick, make the worst fucking musicals, and then fly in to like make sure that people don't get paid more, and then fuck off again. The worst kind of piece <laughs> of shit. Um, it's just. It's like it's amazing how it's just generally accepted that the because you know there's constant propaganda in this country that we have the best political system, and it's generally accepted that obviously we need a second house, and obviously the best people to put in that second house are a bunch of decrepit old people who mm. have for services rendered to political parties, like even like during Brexit when like when it was all the Brexit stuff, and it's like oh look the House of Lords have saved the day, and it's like. Yeah, oh. it's that it's that constant like weird positivity about the the electoral system. Like I actually don't think we get um, constant propaganda about having the best system. I think weirdly enough we have constant propaganda about having a terrible system, but somehow that serves to kind of unleash. That serves to um, drain off quite a lot of the. Uh, like criticism and the energy that would otherwise go into actually reforming it. Well, you no, know there, I mean? no there, even... there's a lot of like, um, what would you do? Would you have a president? That kind of thing. You wouldn't want to have a president like in America. Well, I would mean, you? no, but I mean, like, you wouldn't want to have it elected. You wouldn't want to have it voted on because then you have then you'll end up beholden to the second house. Look at what that happens no, in Australia. No, I've heard the... that so many fucking times. Because one of the because like obviously there's the uh, change of first past the post that's a common liberal talking point. Mm-hmm. The other one is a fully elected second chamber, right? Mm-hmm. And 
it's constantly like talked of, but it never advances longer than that. Of course, the no. systems, um, the logic of the system is built against any government ever removing its ability to get its legislation through. Yeah. It's the same way as like first past the post isn't going to get scrapped unless something very, very serious happens. Yeah. Something you might say about literally every other institution in this country, <laughs> frankly, like we're just waiting for the next war because I don't know how anything is ever going to change without it. But um, the kind of tone this time was really weird. Like when people were talking about um, Evgeny Lebedev got a uh, yeah. peerage, right? The owner of the Evening Standard. And they're it like, it feels like this year was Boris one of the most blatant has... ones. Like, the, oh no, it people... absolutely was. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a, for a start, there's a ridiculous number of honors in yeah. there. And it's just, it's straight up like, yeah, Lebedev owns the Evening Standard employed George Osborne, has been a constant free source of Tory propaganda. Not just Tory party, but Tory lifestyle, Tory mindset. Yeah. Um, it's constantly been there. And, like, he gets elevated to the peerage. And what's the first thing liberals say? It's like, I can't believe Boris has elevated the son of a KGB agent. It's like, motherfucker, a KGB agent could do no less than <laughs> somebody who was fucking born here and was editor of the Evening Standard to destroy people. Yeah, like it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous <laughs> how they, how they've managed to shoehorn that into things. It shoehorn Russia into everything. Yeah, it's like he, he does it because it's in his financial and like class interest to no, do what no, he no, does, no, 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 and no, he no, is no, being no. rewarded for no, it. Levedev grew up sitting at the foot of his dad, who was wistfully talking about the KGB, <laughs> and he was like, "Ah, one day I will get revenge on these capitalists by working with Boris Johnson." <laughs> It's just the idea that, like, kind of criticising the honours list because it's um, not just because it's antiquated, but because it's actually, like, harmful yeah. is pie-in-the-sky idealistic thinking. Mm -hmm. Like, the, I'm just reading, I've just got the, the got, like, one of the Guardian articles on um, the, the honours list. Mm -hmm. um, and it says, like, oh, the ennoblement of the billionaire newspaper owner Evgeny Lebedev came just a week after the Intelligence and Security Committee drew attention to the growth of Russian influence at the heart of British politics and business. Mr. Lebedev, the son of a former KGB agent, has in the past welcomed the Prime Minister to his lavish parties, including one in an Italian castle. But the support offered by his evening standard newspaper to Mr. Johnson during his time as London mayor may have been a more significant in in securing a place in the Lords. It's like, oh, well, that's all right then. Yeah. You've literally abandoned any pretense. The thing you're worried about is some kind of ideological challenge because they never phrase it in economic terms. They act as if Russia's still the Soviet Union. Yep. They phrase it in almost ideological terms, kind of honest business against corruption. Yeah. And then go on to list, actually, it's probably more mundane corruption. So that's all right. Yeah. It's an absolute death of liberal idealism to treat the lords in this particular way as like, a, oh, they're at it again. Mm. And it's like, you could say no. You could <laughs> say no more lords. You could say no more appointments. You could form committees about this thing. You could yeah. enact political change. There's nothing preventing you from doing that. You know, again, it might not be workable through the fucking electoral system or any kind of existing political system, but like, they're just giving up yeah, and, and and doing it like that, like talking about I don't know who was it, uh, Joe Johnson, his yeah. brother. Yeah, oh, that was one. it. Was one of the most um, most ludicrous things of um, Rachel Johnson on the radio reporting on her brother Boris Johnson giving her other brother Joe Johnson a place in the. Yeah. 
and you know, like um, Philip May got one, Theresa May's husband, oh, yeah, Philip Hammond, Ken Clark. And all anyone can say is, oh, as a seasoned watcher of the game, he's clearly trying to mend bridges with the one nation wing of his party. And it's like, yeah. is that it? Is yeah. that really all you're going to go for? You're, this blatant corruption that I swear five years ago, there would, nothing would have been done about it, of course, because as I say, it's very difficult to get that change through. But like, at least the poise would have been less like seasoned Westminster Village Watcher examines case. Yeah. And actually be, this is gross, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And like I say, like not 13 years ago, there were actual criminal charges being drawn up. Mm-hmm. for paying for, for honours, for that kind of influence being peddled. And now it's just like, well, it's part of the Westminster back and forth. It's like, this is the death of liberalism. This is the absolute death of you. Can you not see that? <laughs> well, to be fair, it's, be- it's probably better to fill it full of people like Lebedev, who doesn't need to take a bribe. <laughs> yeah. He can just enact whatever he wants. Like, um, you saw the thing that he said when he was about um being in the House of Lords. He wanted to defend free speech of, of like for, for defending people like J.K. Rowling because it's perfect. It's perfect. It's like, do you know what I like? I like when one billionaire says he's going to use his newfound political appointment to defend the free speech of another billionaire <laughs> against people on Twitter who said, "Please don't say horrible things about me." <laughs> it's fine. It's all fine. So the other big news this week has been, I say big news this week, actually, the A-level thing kind of kicked it off the headlines. The big news last week was another migration crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't even I can't even be asked to you know put it in inverted commas because it definitely needs to be there. But yeah, um, the Home Office doesn't tend to keep totals of people um, like landing, mm-hmm. uh, coming over the channel and landing. Mm-hmm. Press Association estimates... Around 4,000 people in 2020 so far have come to Britain in small boats from the from France. Okay. Um, and in August, there were about 650 people who successfully reached British shores. Um, this apparently was enough to cause a, a week's worth of headlines, the traditional summer migrancy crisis. Well, the best thing about Pretty that is Patel it started got... straight after, um, like, didn't it started with Farage going out, because, like, Farage has been doing going down there yes. to, to like he's been uh, going down to stand at the coast and stare and glow and glower yeah. um it's it look right okay here's here's the here's the like the the playbook cuz he has done this more than once Nigel mm-hmm. Farage right but yeah, Nigel he likes Farage drinking on goes the down coast. and tries to go tries to get into goes to his natural home Fanet, mm-hmm. um which he you know no one would elect him there um he goes down to the coast and he tried to check into a hotel and he said, oh, there's no hotel spaces. It's all migrants. And this video went around the Internet and then suddenly there's a migrancy crisis. So mm-hmm. Priti Patel gets involved, tries to sound very tough. She appointed um, a former Royal Marine. Um, oh, she God, appointed what's the terrifying job title? Clandestine Channel Threat Commander. <laughs> and his job was to, quote, make the route across the Dover Strait unviable <laughs> to be an ferries um so naturally of course anything that nigel farage does the british media must follow and amplify yep. so mm-hmm. then you had the fucking ghoulish sight of boats of reporters live from the channel following migrant boats yet again the british media decided that because a man said a thing <laughs> there's a migrant crisis mm-hmm. so you know hope you can clearly see subconsciously they're hoping they get footage of someone fucking drowning. Yeah, it's well, the countdown to that happening. Well, the thing is, 
I feel, I don't know if they want to get footage of someone drowning, um, because I know for, that what will happen is there will be foot there will there will there will happen, there will be footage of of people drowning, and we'll have whoever whichever journalist is doing it will watch them as they drown. We'll sit there and watch someone drown like um, RuPaul did. Um, and then when people yeah. shout at them on Twitter, like, how the fuck did you just watch someone die? They'll be like, oh, bigots on Twitter again, having a go at me. Like, they, yeah. did you no, see look, that? Look, like, in, in fairness, yeah, 100%. Because, frankly, it's understandable because in, I don't know if you know this, Hugh, in the journalistic, journalistic profession, um, the highest honour the British journalism can bestow is to have your employer defend you publicly when you've done something absolutely gross. Yeah. You know, fuck Pulitzers. Like mm. the thing that will cement your reputation forever and show you a job for life is the managing editor of your newspaper retweeting a Labour MP telling everybody what a great journalist you are <laughs> and how more than ever we need Grenfell victims held to account or <laughs> fucking something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just another round of Nigel Farage policing the right wing of the Tory party. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that he's still doing it. I cannot believe that. You would have thought that, like, Boris having such a secure majority would have done away with the need for that. I, I am 100% convinced that it's more than just a, like, a, 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 a comfortable political manoeuvring for him. Mm-hmm. He 100% has some connection with Tory, with Tories, with the Tory party, Whenever they find themselves in an administrative stupor, yeah, or like some kind of torpor from having been um, in office for so long, I yeah. mean, fuck it. They learned the um, the lessons of Thatcher, which was don't let one person hang around too long. Mm-hmm. You know, every new leader that they have is basically a new Tory party, apparently. Mm-hmm. So this is this is they've just settled themselves into this absolutely perfect electoral kind of rhythm. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's the same. The same old thing. I mean, the same talking points get get pulled out every time they pull a couple more liberal columnists over to the. Well, we actually, I think, have to think about managed migration and sensible yeah. migration. And like the dynamic, always ne- well, never ever having anything to do with actual migrants, other than you know the their brutalization. Yeah. Like. It's this constant pushing of a. I mean, it's what happened. It's what's happened in like a lot of um, in a number of Eastern European countries that have gone real like authoritarian hard right. You separate your your ideology is who deserves to be criminalised, who doesn't, um, and whenever one of these issues comes up, the actual issue at hand is not, again nothing to do with migrants. It's to do with forcing you to take a side. Mm-hmm. You know. And yeah. this time, the, the flavour is, well, what about the red wall towns? Yeah. You know, the impoverished red wall towns where migrants are purported to turn up, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so depressing because I think there was a thought at certain points that this particular narrative of the poor victimised English population, the, the poor victimised English coastal population, or, yeah, the, the impoverished ex-industrial red wall town, poor them... Um, you know, the, the the trajectory of these migrants is a mortal threat to their incomes and their mm. services. It's a more, therefore, it's a mortal threat to the nation. And like, I, I, I am 
I willing to admit I'm Ruby enough to think that whenever this rhetoric calms down, that maybe some of the like logic of anti-racism has seeped in. Yeah. You know, the, the, yeah. the, well, the kind of, from, the, Ruby, from the kind of asylum seeker narrative of new labor, you know, yeah. onwards. Yeah. Well, there's a hope that every time you, you, you think somehow it's softened somehow the kind of anti-racist work and the anti-racist kind of the filtering of anti-racist messaging into like mainstream culture mm-hmm. has somehow managed to to perhaps soften some of this thing. I mean, people have to say I'm not a racist, but that's more than <laughs> I am a racist. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I think what we what we never account for in this particular thing is like how much of how much of a base narrative and how much of the the groundwork has always been laid, and how much this discourse and 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 the people propagating it are very well prepared to use this kind of like loose language mm-hmm. around it, they're, they're prepared for a looseness of language that can absorb and be manipulated to shift the same basic objective. So, I mean, you co-opt the far right's language while removing any racial elements from it, but reinforcing the kind of the, the, the criminality, anti-criminality nature of those claims, which is in itself like racial. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have asylum seekers, refugees become economic migrants, yeah. which is now a term so common and so commonly understood as a certain frame for classifying migrants yeah. as to avoid tainting kind of your existing ethnic minority population. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just remarkable to see every time it comes around, the kind of anti-migrant discourse has this ability to absorb all of those counter narratives, but retain the same shape. You know, like I literally saw uh, an article that um, said all of these desperate people coming from war zones, economic deprivation, they're just coming to to the UK in search of a better life. So we should send in the gunboats. You know, that's 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 not that's not the same as the demonization of asylum seekers, the ones who were eating swans and like taking your, um, your gyro back in 2001 or whatever it was. That's having absorbed the positive pro migrancy messages that people, that people on the left and anti-racist people have been putting out and absorbing it with exactly the same, exactly the same like issue at hand. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I do think it's kind of jarring and a, say a nice reminder but it's it's a timely reminder of just how fucking horrible and incompetent this government and the british state in general is with regards to these issues with the image of the flight path that those that women were they had that plane that was um flying very low over the channel to try and scare boats away and the flight path was carving out essentially you know there's like this area but essentially they carved out a bow tie of defense flying over the channel (laughs) and it's like nothing better sums up the british state's inherent racism than carving a sigil of a bow tie into the sky to scare off foreigners carving kent the neck of england yes yes (laughs) but maybe they're just trying to teach like um migrants the the, like the uh, citizenship test (laughs) they're just trying to teach them as like proper british etiquette and and british clothing the bow tie (laughs) But um, I saw um, so Preet Patel um, was saying that they're they're coming. They're, the thing she said to a bunch of Tories was, they're com- "There's people coming here from France because France is too racist." And ah, yes, the obvious, yeah. the, the, the other implication of, of that is time, yeah. because we need to be maybe a bit more racist. 
yeah. or is it just bashing at the French and saying that it could be two things? It's it's a, it's a it's a useful thing. They're very they've now that Brexit has kind of set a certain tone, mm-hmm. and they they're using it in Brexit negotiations in the Brex in the Brexit culture war, the Brexit battlefield, yeah. the Brexit no man's land of yeah. the culture war. As opposed to you know the mountain warfare, guerrilla warfare, jungle warfare, various other bits of the everlasting culture war. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they can use that as a way of uh, kind of criticizing the French. Yeah, you know, and and saying that actually we don't even have to be this brutal. We all either we have to be this brutal because the French aren't. Yeah, which reinforces a certain idea about kind of the level of left wing kind of policy making in France. Yeah. Um, or saying, oh, we apologise, but we have to be this brutal because the French won't be, again, reinforcing yeah. certain like cultural stereotypes about, yeah. there was, about um, the French. The two narratives that I was hearing on the radio when, this was, when, when they were talking about this rather than A-levels was, one, the French um, are too willing to help them get across, and mm-hmm. two, the French are too racist to them when they're, here, when they're in France. It's like... I fucking really love that it's one of my favorite things of like britain is the least is so much less racist than continental europe mm-hmm. or like britain is the most tolerant least racist country it's like i mean realistically like compared to what yeah and i mean i know i know it's like a, it's definitely like an a liberal ideological thing right mm-hmm. it's it's the same way as like whenever something bad comes up in britain you say well the u.s is worse yeah it's a very much like a kind of comfort blanket for the, yeah, the US definitely. is very much like a comforter for the for the, the the liberal middle class. Yeah. But like how I don't even know how you feel comfortable making that assertion because the comparison like yeah sure that like what's what's closer in like what's what's a closer comparison like culturally like because you, you're talking about it culturally it's like mm. the British are naturally culturally accepting and tolerant. Yeah. Like the comparison for tolerance might be like Australia or Canada. Yeah. You know, they're the, the colonies that might be closest because like they're never talking about Ireland, which is actually the culturally, culturally the most similar country yeah. to the UK. Not yeah. that anyone ever kind of takes that into example, but like who are they comparing to? You can't really compare to like heavily bordered regimes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's very odd. Very mm. odd. Um, yeah, and I just, I just, it, it all, uh, it all feels terrible. It's just another, it's just another example of just this complete void of, of discourse because it really is all it is. It's, it's discourse, and if discourse made a difference, it would, it, it would be some change. There would be some evidence for any of this breaking through. But the fact that all of this anti-immigrant stuff just soaks up anything that it, it comes into contact with, you know. Mm. And, yeah. and there's no, there's also no resolution out the other side, you know, like the requirements of, of monitoring, of monitoring these danger, the, like the dangerous migrants, the mm-hmm. economic migrants, um, is not enough to act as a sop to the Red Wall. I mean, I saw a, um, uh, there was a survey done by YouGov, mm. where it was like, who are, who are the who are the most and least sympathetic areas of the country to, yeah, to the migrants who are coming over the channel? And like, by far, it's the north who are the least. I mean, it was actually split fairly down the middle, which I'm not sure whether it's a victory or a, uh, a like a blessed relief or a, a horrible, indictment. a scathing indictment. I'm yeah, not sure about I think it's that. Disgusting. But, 
but like it's the it's the way that like those targeted as receptive to anti-migrant sen- sentiment yeah anything that you do to police migrants would be the most subject to it i'm talking about like like internal internal id checks yeah passport checks yeah. um like british jobs for british workers a better yeah. nhs all the things that they they claim are the the kind of benefits of having a tougher migrants mm-hmm. uh, a tougher border border um, regime mm. the pressure for these things can't be relieved by those measures because they weren't caused by it in the first place yeah you know that even like subtextually like re-establishing some kind of like privileged hierarchy where it's like yeah british white british people at the top and everyone else in a cascade below yeah it can't it can't affect anything because the anti like the, the actually undermining the capitalist structure is what this anti-migrant sentiment needed like sought to protect mm. you know it can never it the the rec- the restoration of some kind of pre-migratory order it is just it's just can't done so it can't be done so every time it comes out it's pure discourse you know mm. like the numbers we're dealing with it's so minor especially when you compare it to any other country yeah and just all it is is pure discourse mm. all mm. it is is pure things except for the actual measures that are taken against migrants out of the sight of everyone in detention centers and in the now in projecting out into the channel and yeah, it's the, um, hearing it's just an eternal cycle i was getting flashbacks when they were talking about because they were talking about boat people and like one of the mm like big parts in my radicalization um or political awakening um was yeah. living in Australia and yeah. how often they talk about boat people mm. and like when I was in Australia there were boats drowning there were people drowning and they you know they have like camps on islands yeah. and it's fucking disgusting yeah. it's this Australia is a disgustingly racist country. it's um ascension island isn't it the christmas island is the name of it? Uh, Christmas Island, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, but yeah, the the narrative in Australia and Australia is particularly, it's particularly galling in Australia where they complain about boat people, and all of the people yeah. complaining about boat people were like they came on boats. Um, yeah, originally. I mean, settler set to get a bit tanky. Settler societies are always or do, settler populations always feel more precarious about their situation precisely yeah. because they're settlers. You know? Yeah, but um, yeah. hearing that talk again and it's just i've it's just i i can just see it the the there'll be there'll be a load of people will drown and there'll be um there'll be an outcry but it will be significantly less to the outcry when grenfell burned and the when the outcry when yeah. grenfell burned wasn't enough um i was terrified there'll yeah. be more people saying that the real criminals here is not the british the british navy who and um who watched them drown or the press who watched them drown it'll be It'll be the people who gave them the boat. Yeah, yeah. It's it. I, I was so terrified because I, going through another cycle of this, you then start looking for kind of subsidiary stories that you think are going to be used. Mm-hmm. And there was um there was one story, really tragic story in Brighton. There was a couple of people kayaking in Brighton, mm-hmm. um, both of whom were missing for like a week and then were like found uh, in the water um, at the height of uh, like passed away um were found at the height of the migrant thing and the first thing i think is yeah of course this is going to be used because they're going to say well the royal navy are there rescuing migrants and they can't rescue honest british kayakers and you end up in that thought because there's this defensive block and there's this this you can see this avenue towards trying to do something about it but it's completely stymied by the fact that yeah it's it's pure discourse Mm -hmm. other than suffering 
that's all that's there is suffering and discourse. Okay, so with all this stuff that's going on in the world, all the in this country specifically, and all the quite catastrophic things that are happening, the incompetence of our government, um, the corruption of it. It'd be nice to see what what's what's the press doing. What are they most obsessed with? Are they holding power mm. to account as they like to say they do on Twitter when they're hassling people with anonymous Twitter accounts? Or it's the fourth estate. It's the last power block we can trust. It is we can rely on. It's yeah, left. Yeah. Um, or are they writing fan fictions about uh, Jeremy Corbyn government? <laughs> Still. Yep. So, still, Matt Trawley, who probably everyone listening to this knows who Matt Trawley is, but Matt Trawley, if you don't know, is a terrible columnist, and he was a he's a failed stand up comedian. He took, I think, he did a one man show in Edinburgh last year that was called something like "You Wouldn't Believe It," where he talks about how uh, stupid they all yeah, are. Yeah, you, you, you like, I didn't and, know. I didn't end, know this was a thing. Yeah, um, but it was called "This Is Not Normal." Oh, there, there we go. Well, I was just taking. He's got piss. a red box and everything oh god um yeah and it's mainly that i from what i remember that was it was mainly diane abbott jokes um and loony lefty jokes um yeah you know in that way that they do but he works for times radio now because he failed at doing stand-up i think his one-man show has been officially cancelled now um which i'm sure he'll blame on corona or he achieved everything he needed to in the world of comedy so now he's moving on to more powerful. He mastered. He mastered political comedy. Yeah. So, um, so now while he's... still working as an actual serious political journalist, and yeah. he achieved everything he needed to, so he didn't need to do anything else. Yeah. But so he's done this article, and I'm going to read it out to you, and we'll have <laughs> a think about his world, his imagine, his imagineering. Yeah. He'd have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. It's not impossible, claimed Jeremy Corbyn and various former henchmen and coffee getters, that Jeremy Corbyn might now be in his third year as a Labour Prime Minister were it not for the unauthorised unilateral action taken by a handful of senior party officials. Coffee getters. Yep. What a force. Right about now, the man who remained neutral on Brexit would be ready to hold his referendum to decide what to do about coronavirus. Remain at home versus leave to eat out. What? Yeah, it's, um, it's the thing okay. that I've seen. Like quite a few people have have done now. Quite a few journalists have, um, quite, you know, amazingly. Instead of having a go at the government, they say like, "But Corbyn would have done it worse." And it's like, would he? <laughs> like, could it have been much worse? <laughs> Realistically, if like, say Jeremy Corbyn had an official "everyone spit into each other's mouth" policy. <laughs> <laughs> he would have done that as well, the mad bastard. Yeah, it would have been because the Russians told him to. It's traditional Russian <laughs> thing they do. They spit in each other's mouths. Filthy. But, um, okay, here we go. And this, like, classic British journo. It would be Diane Abbott instead of Pretty Patel announcing there had been 300,034,974,000 tests carried out. Because remember that time when she was, um, when she was having a diabetic episode and she forgot some numbers? And Nick but Ferrari like, became Journalist but, of the Year. But, but, I mean, if you're talking about accuracy with numbers, mm-hmm. like, the number of tests is massively wrong. Mm-hmm. It has been massively wrong. It's been divided into kind of yeah. ones that have gone but to private clinics, that Diane Abbott would have been officially wronger. have all officially have all disappeared. Yeah, but Diane Abbott would have been wronger. Okay. Don't you understand? Okay. She would have been wronger by virtue of being Diane Abbott. Um, John McDonnell would be nationalising Marks and Spencer... Which actually, 
would good. probably be a good thing. We're like, you look at what's happening what, now. We're like, I, there's you know the amount of unemployment that's going to be happening now in the service sector. Perhaps a nationalised department store would be a thing that would be a kind of useful thing in this country. I mean, aside aside from trying to kind of normalise socialism to um, fit into a particular, you know, like the uh, yeah. of course we're not going to nationalise sausages, yeah. which is like funny and a legit defense of mm. what was happening then but also like yeah don't get think don't get me wrong there should be a nationalized supermarket yeah. what the fuck are you talking about yeah. people starve to death and you think that there shouldn't be some kind of guaranteed source of food for them yeah, yeah. there will be <laughs> yeah. whether it's Marks and Spencer's well yeah well we can get it on the cheap um yeah well, what do you think socialism is you fucking morons yeah <laughs> Richard Bergen would be calling for the government to be overthrown, having got a bit confused about things because you know they're still having a go at Richard Bergen. What's the, you know what why did they Richard think. Bergen get wrong? Uh, Richard but, Bergen uh, is, is there a no, specific... you know why they don't know Richard Bergen. Richard Bergen has a regional accent and he speaks slowly. But he's not a stupid man. He's not a stupid uh, like... man at all. But because he speaks slowly, because he seems to be like thinking about what he says, and he has a regional accent. <laughs> Okay. To be fair, his some of his metal just, taste it's just is shocking. Weird, weird. It's just like, did did they get the? It's like doing the Rebecca Long Bailey thing. They don't ever look at what she actually says. No. Which, yeah, there's some things you could probably satirize there, mm. but like, it's just like a generalized kind of. <laughs> imagine if they were the type of person to say. It's not even imagine if they said this. It's imagine if they were the type of person yeah. to say this. Exactly. Um, sadly, it was not to be. Corbyn is the victim in all this. He'd have won the 2017 election, but his internal opponents at Labour HQ feared that he was not he was not genial magic grandpa, but a cantankerous, unpatriotic old lefty with at best a surprising capacity to tolerate others thinking that he might be anti-Semitic without, feeling, without feeling especially moved to do anything about it. Yeah, he's cantankerous, because remember that time when yeah. he got... Remember that time you know, when he raised like his this voice? makes me feel so nostalgic, you know? Yeah. I remember that time he got grumpy. You know when he's like grumpy with um with the with journalists when they're has- hassling him first thing in the morning outside his house again. Um, I don't even remember him being that grumpy. I don't know. Well, yeah, no, he was sure. short. Just... He was short yeah. outside his house, and I remember once he raised his voice in a thing. He's never like he, he was like super calm. Frankly, man. he could have done with being a lot more fucking cantankerous. Exactly. Oh, those pesky kids. Yeah. His plans to turn the National Capitalist Funfair into a socialist utopia with free candy floss, waltzers and broadband. Scream if you want to download porn faster. Thwarted by the do-gooders in the battered old machine known as the Labour Party. Battered old vehicle known as the Labour Party machine. Two things. Right. We still Two need things. free broadband. Yeah, we talked about it earlier with the A-levels. Like, the, with people yeah. studying from home... They need access to the internet, and it would have been like it was shown straight away after when everyone was sent back home that actually the internet provision in this country is shocking. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things there, right? Mm-hmm. Firstly, oh, if only the uh, the internal meddlers hadn't got to them, and it's like, yeah, are you denying that internal party politics has an effect on electoral outcomes? That's been an interesting kind of thing mm. of complete in order to void the things that you don't like in a in a in a particular line of attack mm. you have to pretend very obvious things don't exist if you were actually being good faith about it you would say it did have an effect but it wasn't the main reason some people will go that way but yeah. to just deny that oh no all all parties are completely whole and guaranteed and pointed in one direction at all times mm. they're basically a uh, a uh, uh, one giant beast made up of individual cells all working for the common good. It's like, 
You're a political journalist. You literally don't assume that. It's part of a political journalist's brand to report on that kind of stuff. That's what. <laughs> that's the interesting, juicy bits yeah. that you get in your gossip. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, like magic, like he obviously uses the kind of uh, the, the example of like the funfair to make it seem unserious. Yeah. And unlike, uh, you know, like it, it would have been a fantasy land. And it's like, I don't know. Have you seen, um, have you seen a lot of British town centres recently? Mm. Like they're almost all like food places and entertainment places mm. and shops. Like so much of the British economy is based around turning everything into a fucking funfair. Yeah. Services and and um, those kind of things are about eighty percent of the economy. We don't make anything anymore. We're a consumer society. Mm. What do you think is your definition of a funfair? You know, yeah. I, if anything, one of most of his policies were aimed around trying to revitalize industrial areas by making um, like solar panels and shit like that. Yeah. Like, I I don't really know what. Maybe maybe that was one of the problems with like the Corbynite offering was that you didn't actually put in enough masochism. It's like if we get in, you are gonna have you are gonna have to be in work at fucking eight thirty yeah. on the dot and you are gonna sit there being yeah. well paid, manufacturing <laughs> solar panels that will provide electricity for everybody low cost. There will you'll have you your own sit there and you'll like have your it. own home. That you will have to look after. You'll have to mow you talk, your lawn. You talk, you talk about the politics of kindness and the politics of hope, and there's a world to win. There is nothing that the British public responds to more than a nice lump of disgust and grinding misery. Maybe that was what was missing. <laughs> um, yeah. The one thing I still struggle with is, even if you accept that in 2017 Corbyn was undermined by Labour HQ... Most of them had gone by 2019, and when in and when in full and complete control of the machine, he led the party to the worst results since 1935. At what point have people said that he was in complete control in 2019? So that I've noticed that that's, that's the a other thing bit. I've seen they've, that. They, they've they've definitely said, well, of course, there were still lots of um, people opposed to Corbyn in 2017, but by 2019, he had an absolutely pure party. And it's like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? Have you hmm. not? seen anything again have you did you not pay attention to it yeah there was a james uh, there was an absolutely hilarious i hate giving any oxygen to james ball mm-hmm. i mean that i mean that kind of uh, discursively and literally <laughs> but he said something the other day of like well of course corbyn got an easy ride until the brexit referendum and it's like what the fuck are you talking about yeah are you you don't have to be a corbynite you don't have to be even be a corbyn supporter to actually look at what actually happened that was documented daily <laughs> in detail mm. in incredible numbers of outlets mm. about exactly how Jeremy Corbyn was treated as an individual and as a figure mm. and how the left in general and how Corbynites were treated. Mm. You really don't have to be, you really don't have to do this. It's all recorded now. You don't have to make this stuff up. I'm merely speculating here. But I do wonder if we should at least entertain the idea that Corbyn and his cranks were rubbish, and the country, having got the measure of him, just didn't want him to be prime minister. Three years on from Jer- from O Jeremy Corbyn, if he'd gone back to Glastonbury to address the empty fields, he'd find that even the cows aren't interested anymore. That's what you call herd immunity.
I find it I find it amazing that that anyone paid him the money for him to have a one-man comedy show. The public sphere is in fucking ruins. Mm. The amount of, like, what do you call it, social capital, the amount of arguments, the amount of personal reputations that these people had to expend in order to um, kind of stop whatever the Corbyn moment, the Corbyn era was, mm. um, was absolutely ruinous to them. They can't. They can't go back now. They can't mm. make those arguments again. They can't go back to being nice, kind of centre right or centre left liberals. They they just can't do it. Mm. And yet, even now, after Corbyn has gone, he remains this like actually quite a comfortable space for these people to exist in. Mm. You know, and I, I I'm just shocked. I always knew Corbyn was going to end up being a nostalgia figure. He was mm. going to get national treasure status. But it's happened within like six months. Corbynism is nostalgic for them. They can't help yeah. but but wallow in the kind of the simpler times. Oh, remember when Corbyn laid that wreath? <laughs> yeah. Um, he's literally actually he's literally inverted Tony Benn. He's achieved national treasure status, but as an absolute pariah. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone everyone wanted to keep um, Tony Benn around as like this exemplary exemplary parliamentarian. He's mm. like essential to the functioning of parliament. Well, I mean, if if the most recent stories about Corbyn have been anything to go by, it's the absolute opposite. They're mm. trying to get him expelled from um, the Labour Party. Yeah. They're trying to expel him from parliament completely. It's absolutely incredible how quickly that's happened. Mm. Only Staggering. The, only the hardcore fans battle on. It must be exhausting for John and Diane and Seamus and Carrie to keep all those sock puppet Twitter accounts going. They believe he'll rise again like that other JC, huh? but even among the Labour membership, most have moved on. Maybe I should, yes. And yet, when setting out to write about Labour, these, these historical internal squabbles are still the most interesting thing. Four months into the job, the best that voters have to say about Keir Starmer in focus groups is that he isn't Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not Jeremy Corbyn either, although my courgettes are coming on lovely. But it doesn't mean I should be PM. Um, quite amazingly... What does that mean? I don't know. What, what does that mean? He's never offered himself up for election. Like, I, 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 don't, I, mm. I don't get what... I, no, never mind. Never yeah. mind. Well, it's, it's the, 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 only the hardcore fans battle on shit and talking about sock puppet Twitter accounts. It's just, again, about delegitimizing any left-wingers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quite amazingly, Labour under, under Starmer is still trailing the Tories in the polls. Despite the Cabinet being engaged in so many displays of incompetence, you can only assume that you assume huh. they are being sponsored. And yet, what would Starmer do if he were PM? We haven't got a Scooby-Doo. I, I can't believe that this Tory government, with literally 90% of the press on its side, <laughs> is still ahead. It's doing everything wrong. It's doing so badly, and the Labour Party isn't led by Jeremy Corbyn anymore. I just don't understand it. If only there was some way me, a Times journalist, <laughs> could find out why this is the case. <laughs> I'm not asking for comedy from him. I'm really not asking for comedy from him. No, it is. But if only there was some way As that I could square this, square this circle that's yeah. going around in my head. Mm. Mm. But yeah, that's it. He's fucking... That's oh. it. It's like, but also, I, it's just that thing... Like, when you have, like, we've had another batch of, you know, you must defend quality journal journalism because coronavirus has fucked up the press massively because, you know, yeah. no one's buying any papers. And they're like. I heard the mail let go of, um, I think it was like a, quite a lot of journalists. Like, I remember it being in three figures. Didums. Um, yeah. But you, when they, like, they say, like, oh, you know, you've got to support quality journalism. And it's like, 
No, not nah. not in this not not in this avenue. I don't. I've I've so obviously I've massively reduced my um my news intake mm. um simply because I felt like I had better things to do with my time. I felt like I wasn't learning anything. The weird thing is about doing the pod as well. Like I actually felt like I was falling behind on some things that I should be able to um, keep up with. Hmm. But at the same time, the amount of effort I would have to go into selecting what I focus my attention on, mm. attention on was itself massively draining. Mm. Like the, you need, like it's all well and good. Like I know there was a, a bit of an argument a few weeks ago about how, how useful Twitter is mm -hmm. for um, focusing the mind, how much time you waste on it. Mm. Um, but I just think that like, there's a level of like really exceptional ignorance that you would need to cultivate in yourself in order to not be able to um, trust the people that you like on Twitter to show you things that are of benefit and of interest to your politics. Right. Mm. Um, but frankly, like you can slack this off. Why are you still doing this? Mm. He's gone. It's dead. Mm. You don't need to piss on the corpse. Yeah. But I, it's all they've got. It's in, it's embarrassing. I mean look, oh, all all of tragic. the all of the all of the future prediction ones, all those Dominic Sandbrook um, yeah. mail articles about predicting the first hundred days of a Corbyn premiership or mm. something like that are all intensely embarrassing. Mm. They're 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 meant for a very lightweight thing. And of course, Matt Trolley would be a comedian because I mean ultimately he's desperate to turn politics into some kind of entertainment product because mm. it's frankly more bankable. Yeah. Um and it keeps people attention people's attention spans longer. But like there's no there's really no argument for this for this stuff for the the kind of embarrassment of putting yourself into a position where you are so hopelessly nostalgic for six months ago yeah that in the middle of a an actual fucking pandemic yeah a huge recession yeah that's just come about you're still laughing at the kind of the last labor leader yeah do you know what i mean the yeah. last left-wing leader even if you're not a left-winger that's just embarrassing conduct the largest recession in recorded history, isn't it? Yes, like, it was yeah. the largest down. It's the largest quarter downturn. Yeah. I don't know if it counts as a recession yet because it needs to be like three straight quarters, I think. Okay, but anyway, so the largest downturn. Um, we've got yeah. pandemic. Everyone's locked in their houses, and yeah. you know, like was like most of our lifetimes, there has not been a, a working economy, like working mm -hmm. as intended, and he's still making jokes about Diane Abbott when she was on LBC years ago not getting mm. some numbers right when she was having a diabetic episode. Yeah, it's it's comfortable. It's comfortable and yeah. I'm I'm just I'm I'm kind of shocked that it it only took this long for the Corbyn era to become yeah, this nostalgic. Mm. But just it's a comfortable it's going to continue. It's going to continue mm. to be a very comfortable space for these people to exist in. I think Is for the it? first time in a long time I think for the first time in a long time, they actually felt that anti-Corbynism was a moral crusade. It was morally correct mm. to oppose Corbyn, mm. regardless of how many things they actually had to kind of invent in order to make it a moral crusade. They felt it was a moral crusade. It might be the first time in their lives they've ever felt morally justified about what they do. Mm. And they are desperate to feel like that again. They need it. They yeah. need another left-wing leader, frankly. They need another left-wing um, hate figure because they cannot do without it. Mm. Yeah, 100%.
Uh, okay, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week, hopefully. All right, bye. bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to come.